Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the Huffington Post politics podcast. This week, we'll be discussing the green light for the Brexit bus. Labour disappearing in ever-diminishing circles, Trump doing exactly what he said he'd do, and we'll be bringing you up to date on what you might have missed amid all the noise and confusion of the week in politics. And after spending much of last week chasing Theresa May around the world to make sure she had signed up to his morning memo, Paul Wall returns to the podcast. Hello, Paul. Hello. Hello. Also here in HuffPost HQ is the Liam Fox baiting Martha Gill. More on that later. Hello, Martha. Hello. And Ned Simons, who is to journalism, what a three-line whip is to Labour MPs, easily ignored. Excellent. All right? <laughs> That's the joke Rude. that I told you earlier on. That Rude. Is that the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> joining us later on will be Sarah Harris, who will be doing a no-doubt excellent quiz. I am, of course, Owen Bennett. Let's crack on. This week was an historic moment in Parliament. As Jeremy Corbyn did not defy the Labour leadership and did actually vote with the whip for once. The voting question was, of course, over whether Theresa May should have the power to trigger Article 50 and start the process of taking the UK out of the EU. Over two days of debate, there were some passionate speeches on both sides, but it was Tory veteran Ken Clark who gave one of the most entertaining in favour of blocking Brexit. Apparently, you follow the rabbit down the hole and you emerge in a wonderland where suddenly countries throughout the world are queuing up to give us trading advantages and access to their markets that previously we've never been able to achieve uh, as part of the European Union. Nice men like President Trump, President Erdogan, are just impatient to abandon their normal protectionism and give us access. Don't let me be too cynical. I hope that's right. I do want the best outcome for the United Kingdom from this process. Uh, No doubt somewhere there's a hatter holding a tea party with a dormouse in the teapot. Long-term Eurosceptic John Redwood was beside himself with excitement as he welcomed the historic moment. And I had reached the point, Mr Speaker, where if the country had voted Remain, I would have respected the country's judgment and I would have not sought re-election at the next general election because I see no point in this puppet parliament, this parliament full of views and airs and graces that cannot change the laws, change the taxes and spend the money in the way the British people want. And that is the liberty that we regain. This parliament is going to be made great by the people. It is going to be made great despite itself. It is going to be made great because the people understand better than so many of their politicians. Earlier on today, I caught up with Labour MP Andy Slaughter, who is one of those who's in the shadow government, he's a shadow housing minister, but who defied the three-line whip uh, in order to vote against uh, triggering Brexit. As of the moment we record this podcast, which is about 10 to 2, he hasn't been sacked. So I hope that by the time you hear this, that's still the case. But here's the interview with him earlier on, and he told me uh, why he decided to defy the party and vote the way he did. So Andy Stoughton, yesterday you went against the three-line whip. 
Mm-hmm. It's, at the moment, it still seems that you're still part of the shadow government. So why are you expecting a phone call from a whip to tell you that you're not needed in the shadow housing team anymore? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, my understanding is that the, um, the chief whip's going to wait until after the, the bill has cleared its common stages, because we'll have a lot of important amendments next week, including Labour amendments, which could alter the nature of the bill, and then there will be a third reading vote. So, uh, given that I don't think it's absolutely clear how people are, are, uh, are, are interpreting that and voting on it, and we don't know what the Commons is going to decide, it depends on Tory rebels, I think he, they've taken a sensible view that they'll review the situation uh, at the end of next week. But yes, in, in theory, anybody who voted against three line whip um, uh, could well be uh, dismissed. And, and therefore, it must have been quite a, a strong reason for you to vote against the three line whip. Obviously, there's the critics who will say that you know, you're going against the result of the referendum. We had all these arguments yeah. in June last year. What was it that made you decide, no, you didn't want to basically trigger Brexit? Well, it was, and I've written uh, it on my, on my uh, website a sort of full. Uh, reasoning that I went through and, and uh, I, I do respect the outcome of the referendum and what changed my mind about supporting triggering the process I would have been prepared for the process to be triggered was the fact that Theresa May when she made the Lancaster House speech said I will make the decision and that decision will be a, a hard Brexit decision and nobody will be able to ask me to review that decision whether that's Parliament or whether it's going back to the people for a a second referendum. And I think that that makes it unacceptable. I don't think that is what we voted for. And this is now the only opportunity that that, that, that MPs had to actually say, no, that's not what either we wanted or indeed what I think a lot of people voted for. Do you think it was wrong of Jeremy Corbyn to impose a three-line whip? Do you think he should have made it perhaps a free vote? Or do you have some sympathy with the position that he's in? I have have a lot of sympathy for the position that that he's in because... um, you know, parties have to. These are key issues uh, of the age. That's why, ironically, you had a lot of rebels because people had to think about their own position, their conscience, their constituents, what they thought was good for the future of the country. But parties also have to take uh, a position on this. And Jeremy, Jeremy's going to be criticised either way. So I, I make no, no criticism of him imposing the whip. And finally, two members of the shadow cabinet have did stand down. Uh, Diane Abbott, though, um, didn't. She abstained on the vote entirely. And there are some people in the Labour Party who feel a bit frustrated by this. They're thinking, how come she got to abstain when others stood down? What, what's your What's your take on that? I, I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, I've heard that, that, that Diane was uh, was ill, and that's why she couldn't uh, take part in the vote. And I have to accept that. Andy, they're not quite sure about Diane Abbott. Uh, Paul, what did you make of this yesterday? Um, obviously, we had lots of debate about whether or not we should trigger it, but were you surprised by the number 47 Labour MPs to fight the whip? Were you surprised by that? That's about right. I mean, basically, that reflects the sheer number of constituencies that are pretty strongly remain within the Labour Party. So you can see why they did it. Um, I, I think Keir Starmer's right. You know, he's accepting up front this is a problem for Labour. Um, I think he slightly overdid that in the debate. You know, it really, this isn't a debate about Labour. It's about a debate about the country. But, you know, that you can... C- feel his pain because this is not going to be resolved as 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 long as the country's divided labor's going to be divided um now they're trying to pitch it saying look that proves that we actually represent the whole country because we we spent the represent the whole of the division um but owning that is quite hard no it's quite it's quite a tough tough pitch but at the same time um I think they're just going to have to get through this bit. Next week's going to be very interesting because, as John McDonnell implied this morning, they're going to wait until early um, 
next week. Sort of, I think it's going to be Wednesday when the whole thing is going to finally be sorted out. We've got three days of this uh, bill left. They're going to concertina all the stages in uh, remaining stages into the final day on Wednesday, and then uh, the shit will hit the fan. Let's be honest, because that's Can we say that on this I think podcast? you're allowed. It's a family like show. A, well, it's not. It's a family show. He's <laughs> come back a bit strong from America, really. <laughs> Blimey. And what's going to happen on Wednesday is you're going to have the remaining stage. You're going to have the report stage and third reading, and that will be the end of the bill on, th- on Wednesday night. That's the point at which Clive Lewis who's in the shadow cabinet, has to decide, the shadow Brexit, uh, shadow business minister has to decide, you know, is he going to stay in the shadow cabinet? Is he going to vote against this third reading? That's a massive call for him, given that everyone thinks he could be potentially the person to replace Jeremy Corbyn. Um, if Jeremy, for whatever reason, decides to resign or what f- I fight what to election, whatever. This is that the three-line whip applies to all stages of the bill, right? So if you defy it, I know Clive Lewis didn't, but if you defy it at the second stage, which these people have done, then like, you're out, right? Yep. I don't understand. I don't <laughs> normally, you do it again. Yeah. Now, normally you'd be right, and, and and that's what I find is very strange about this. And the normal rules, it's it's like automatic expulsion. You know, you you you're basically committing political suicide if you vote against the three line whip, and you're a whip. <laughs> you're Jeremy Corbyn, for example. Yeah, yeah, whips yeah. Well, whip, three yeah. whips vote against their own whip. Now, this is just weird situation. Bad, but right? why is it weird? It's weird because. They're terrified of having yet another reshuffle. They've had. Well, did the know, last one stop though? Well, they're still in the middle a good of the last question. one. I, I think, think that's just. Uh, in theory, this this would be their fourth. Jeremy Corbyn's fourth reshuffle in what seventeen months or something. Is it like at school when like when you play rounders, not enough in one team, you have to go into bat twice. People yeah. have to play round again. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're in because we've we gone through. Well, that's that's going to have to start happening surely because you've got people half the people who don't want to serve, then the people who you know now you, fired. So what's going to you know who's going to be? Don't you, Paul Flynn? <laughs> Again, back double jobbing, Absolutely. coming back to the rescue. But that is a genuine problem. You know, they've already got. A, they had a difficulty last time getting enough people to to, to man all the jobs. Um, if now they're losing people, particularly you know three women from from shadow cabinet, that's going to be quite tough to fill. Given his commitment, the person I feel sorry balance. for is Chidip Sadiq, who did resign a shadow ministerial job to vote against Jeremy Corbyn's orders and it turns out maybe she didn't actually need to do that and in her speech in the Commons she said you know I know that my position wasn't kind of a, a great great office of state but she said she did like doing the job and she felt it was important so if you're high you think hang on a second all you guys did what I did but you've still got your jobs well maybe yeah, she'll well, be I one did. of the first back then. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Martha you did a story on one MP uh, Rupert Huck who told a whip that she who's in the shadow government and then she told a whip she wasn't going to vote with the with the whip, and then what happened? Well, there were reports the whip told her oh, don't, that she offered her resignation. The whip was like, oh, don't worry, you don't have to resign. Um, and then there was another report the whip just didn't press her to resign. But it, it did seem that, that the people who resigned were resigning to make a point rather than being forced to. But then I also heard that Dawn Butler was told that she couldn't abstain, that she was told, no, no, you can't abstain, you have to do it. And then Lo and behold, Diane Abbott comes down with a migraine. I mean, I must set this point. I went home ill yesterday. Just as the debate started. So, so Abbott avoided the vote by being ill, and yeah. you avoided working on yeah, the and vote we're both, by being yeah. ill. We're both back in today. I know like, which is worse. Diane Abbott and I were not together last night in any way. This wasn't some sort of concerted plan. Or on that on the record. But also, so maybe Diane Abbott did get ill. Some of us, some, even the strongest of us get ill sometimes. I think she is ill because today she's had to cancel going to David Lemon's constituency for a, for a Labour fundraiser, and that's very, very unusual. So I suspect we'll have to you know give the benefit of the doubt on that but we return to the main point which is 
this is a party management issue for Jeremy Corbyn. How does he handle it? He's got a problem in terms of filling those shadow jobs. You can see why they're going to have to wait a few more days. What will be fascinating is on Wednesday night, will he have a team ready and in, in place to replace those people that he knows? He knows all the names of those people who are going already. It's not as if it's going to be a shock. Um, there could even perhaps be even more resignations, though. And so either Wednesday night or Thursday morning, we're going to find out, has Jeremy Corbyn got enough people on the back benches who are willing to serve on the front bench? And, and the problem, of course, is Jeremy hasn't got that currency of saying that we'll have to vote for things sometimes we don't like, because he never, ever did that, famously, of course. And even Keir Starmer, I think, voted against HS2 uh, last year, despite the fact the party line is in favour of it. So Keir Starmer can't even say that. So there is a But there, there is a big problem here for Labour, which is, you know, don't forget... The reason a lot of these Remain MPs are, are voting the way they are, they're, they're, they're doing it out of conscience. You know, they, they genuinely, genuinely campaign passionately against Brexit. And they feel as though they're slightly liberated. People like Ben Bradshaw, you know, and Heidi Alexander. And they think, right, I'm actually doing what I believe in. Mm. And like Ken Clark, who you quoted there, they think this is an historic mistake. And they want it on record that they've said it's a mistake and they'll be proved right. They and hope. particularly there's nine Labour MPs who voted against triggering Article 50, whose constituencies voted Leave. So you've got quite a lot of Labour MPs who voted Remain in this vote, as it were, because their constituencies did, and you could argue perhaps they're worried about electrical, electrical, electoral implications down the line. But, you know, if you're Chris Bryant, who's seat in the Ronda voted Leave, you can't even say that. He yeah. passionate European and said, despite what my constituency voted for, I think this is, like you say, Paul, such a mistake. I'm going to vote against not just the national mood, but my own local mood. But don't forget, the public also want la- la- those Leave constituencies. They want Labour to get on with it. I talked to Lisa Nandy this week, and she's in a very pro-Leave constituency. She met a guy of the cheese counter in the Tesco's last weekend, and he said, why are you lot just getting on with it? Why are you just getting on with it? It's, we've, we've made the decision, now it's for you to Im- implement it. And, sh- you know, it's very hard to answer that. Speaking of getting on with it, the white paper today was published very, very quickly. I've had a quick look through it. Doesn't look as much new in there actually than what Theresa May said before. There's some lovely diagrams. There's one bit where they claim that workers in the UK have 14 weeks statutory holiday a year in one graph, which I think is. <laughs> I mean, unless. Paul, we need to have a I conversation after this because. <laughs> do you not? No, I, I mean, I've, yeah. I mean, oh, you're you missing out. So yeah, like, oh, you don't want to go, only. So, yeah, so the white paper, I mean, just have a quick look through it. It doesn't look like there's anything in there going, oh my goodness, that's new. It's no, we white. didn't expect anything no. dramatically to add to the Prime Minister's Lancaster House speech, which set out most of their agenda. What we've got are some nice fancy graphs and graphics. I mean, there's a lovely graphic, uh, which is perfect for radio, obviously, talking about <laughs> graphics. <laughs> but um, uh, where the, it's basically a sort of, it looks like an, an, a person's eye and the pupil is the E. EU and sort of that's and the iris is the EU I should say and most of the rest of it the white of the eye is Britain so there's this white bit which is completely different from anything else so it's not in any bit of Europe it's not even the outside we just got this own status so it's almost like saying at the moment we've got a bespoke deal that's good for the UK and we've got our <laughs> own unique position in Europe so right just underline it though yeah and um, anyway, so there's nothing new in the white paper, but, you know, I think the government have played that brilliantly, the white paper, this whole charade, you know, I know for a fact people in the civil service have been working for weeks on this white paper. It's existed for a long time. And yet the Tory Remainers somehow thought, oh, it's a great concession to get her to agree to produce one. And then a great concession to get her to produce it this Thursday. 
And neither is the case, to be honest. And, you know, if they can accept those crumbs, that's why people on, who are passionately remain on, uh, on the Labour side think you're just being taken for dupes. Well, particularly as David Davis, when he was being pressed about having a white paper before they revealed they'd do one, he said to um, a committee, it'd be really hard to produce a white paper by mid-February. You know, yeah. it's a lot of work to put into it. I'm not sure we could have that ready. Lo and behold, it's what, the uh, February the 1st today, yep. is it? And there you go, 77 pages, ready to go. Exactly. So, um... Let's just let's move on to international matters. Trump. Now, Paul, you were there. Talk us through the madness, bearing in mind... Do you have a clip uh, we, of the madness? We haven't got a clip of the madness because I think everyone's sort of heard of them. I want to hear it from you, Paul, <laughs> in a concise, thrifty manner. <laughs> think of a tweet. Well, can I Go say... I did you listen to the last week's podcast, did you? I did. You it, was, it was a triumph. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely didn't listen then. Can I say that the Go most on. amazing thing about being in the same room as Donald Trump an enormous room, an ornate room. It was, you know, it's the east wing of the White House. And he filled the room, you know, just by entering it, by standing at the podium, gripping it, his, his expressions, his comic timing was really pretty impressive. You know, his vernacular, the just the sheer presence of the guy. You saw some, uh, I hate to say it, it's a political superstar. It's a bit like when you, you walk in, Owen. You know, it's, it's, it's very unusual. You know, there are not many politicians who can do that. Is he like Boris in that respect then? Would you say he's like no, Boris? No, he's, he's a much more, in, in a strange way, more serious version of Boris. Because he, although he's as flip, he actually is more cutting with most of his remarks. He's more, more direct. And he can sum things up in a, in a half a sentence that his base absolutely love. And it's a bit like Farage, you know, much mocked, much ridiculed, but actually has a, a, a great gift for summarising what his voters want. And also about not playing by the rules. Not playing by the rules. Of even like press conference. And, and exactly. And he, in the middle of the press conference, you know, when um, the BBC's Laura Koonsberg asked him a tricky question, and then he said to Theresa May, show that was your question, and you know this is a special relationship, and that kind of line. Like in the room when Laura Quinsberg asked that question, because did you know just American hacks going, oh good, go for it, or did you feel a bit of tension? What well, the Americans were all kind of uh, they're, they're clearly terrified of Trump, you know, and that's why they had two tame questions, one from Fox News, not surprisingly, but the British questions from both the BBC and the Sun were proper, genuine questions. Now over here, they were sort of normal questions, they were sort of genuine, sceptical questions, but for some reason, it was a massive story that they're asking genuine. Skeptical questions. This does work both ways. You remember when shortly after Boris, when he gave his first press conference with John Kerry, and the American press was over, and they asked very tough questions of Boris about his past comments about Obama and things about you know, other foreign nationalities. So we can, I think, we should rightly praise the British press for what they did in Washington, but we shouldn't be too pompous about it because yeah. the American press did exactly the same thing to yeah. Boris. Yeah. Perhaps we got too used to Boris and let him, let him off the Good hook point. sometimes. Well, it's not just that. It's, um, Boris has a pa- pa- certain power over which journalists can ask questions and they don't want to use up all their the, their capital, whereas, you know, we can fly in and out answering tough <laughs> questions and not have to pay for it at all. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, think, I think that's partly it. But the curious thing about that whole sort of day in, in the White House was um, that Trump and May were never alone together apart from the one moment that it will always be remembered, which is that tiny moment where they walked down the colonnade after the press conference towards lunch and he grabbed her hand. That was the only point at which they were alone. Now, we, we were all making jokes about we can understand why you don't want to be alone with Donald Trump yeah. in a room for a certain amount of time. But it is important because Tony Blair, definitely, Gordon Brown, definitely, David Cameron, definitely all had one-on-one FaceTime with a brand-new president when they had a relationship with them, from when they first met them in the White House. Theresa May didn't do that. That tells you two things. One, 
how much Trump relies on his team of advisors. Steve Bannon is definitely the power behind the throne. It was clear the way he walked around the room as if he owned it as much as Trump. Um, so Trump relies on those guys, and you might say that's the scariest thing of all because basically he's now a vehicle for the for the alt-right. Um, but it, the other thing it tells you is that actually Theresa May relies completely on her advisors too. Now she's got this very tight-knit team, Fiona Hill and Nick, Nick Timothy, who are co-chiefs of staff, and they were in the room with her. Very few other people were there, so it's the two main players, the President the Prime Minister and their key aides and their national security advisors. And that's basically it. No one else allowed in the room. But, as I say, that shows you how much Theresa May relies on her own aides. She basically, most of her speeches, most of her political identity is down to Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. And her speechwriter, who was at the dinner as well, and I, I met on the plane, lovely guy called Chris Wilkins, um, he has been Theresa May's speechwriter for a long time. He was the guy who drafted the Nasty Party speech in 2002, 15 years ago, and he's back and he's writing her key Brexit speech, her conference speech, her Davos speech, all of which have been well-received. And he also wrote this week's, um, or last week's, uh, Philadelphia speech, which went down very, very well in that Republican room. Very well-crafted speeches, but it shows you how much she relies on a tight-knit team. And how do you think that would have changed uh, the, the interaction between the two leaders? Because... Give uh, how, how how what's the difference between having a one on one having a one on one with your advisors? Do you think that will have made certainly perhaps made things more restrained, more kind of considered conversation? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're one on one, then you can talk really frankly with no one else listening. Uh, particularly even if you don't have any interpreters, um, you can talk really frankly about what your genuine concerns are. It's not going to be minuted. You know, it's it's genuinely going to be kept private for a long, long time. As Blair and Bush, have, you know found out so it would be 30 years before the contents of the conversation are repealed the thing is that may i don't think was confident enough in how she would be dealing with donald trump to actually tell him how it is at this stage i think it's just too early she might have a one-on-one -on -one within a couple of years and the same thing for trump i just think he's so inexperienced as being president he maybe couldn't even trust himself to have a one-on-one -on -one with Theresa may so those frank talks that may keeps going on about having Possibly yeah, they've gone through <laughs> filters. One of the things that Theresa May, of course, mentioned in the press conference was a state visit for Donald Trump, which uh, sort of irked everyone and irked everyone even more when the refugee ban was announced. Boris Johnson came before uh, MPs in the House of Commons on Monday to discuss this ban on travel and how it might affect British citizens with dual nationalities. Here is Yvette Cooper giving him what for. Has he urged the US administration to lift this order, yep. to help refugees and to stop targeting Muslims. Yeah. This order was signed on Holocaust Memorial Day Which makes for the so sake of history, for heaven's sake, have the guts to speak out. Now, a petition calling for uh, the state visit to be cancelled has, at the time of recording, 1.8 million signatures and there was protests all across the country uh, calling for this state visit to be cancelled. And eagle-eyed Sarah, who had nothing better to do, was on, keeping her little eyes open, looking for funny signs, weren't you, Sarah? It's one of my favourite things to do. Absolutely. Do you know Sarah plays the drums in her spare time? Ah. <laughs> she wasn't in your band, though. She wasn't in my band. Ah. What sort of band is it you play the drums in? Um, it's not really cool drums. It's like samba reggae. Mm. Like, samba reggae? Like Notting Hill, kind of, yeah. God, yeah, you no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it's other. a thing. Same metropolitan, well, not, but same metropolitan elite. <laughs> anyway, come on, let's, let's go. Okay, so I'm going to test your um, sort of regional dialect knowledge mm. using 
Trump protest signs. Oh, good. So I'm going to tell you what was on the sign, and I want you to tell me which city the uh, the protest was in. Is it just UK cities or is it around the world? UK cities. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the first one, Trump is a bam. Bam? It's a bam. Oh, is that Welsh? I don't know where that's from. Uh, Is that Cardiff? Trump is a bam. Trump is a bam. I'm going to say Cardiff. Liverpool. I'm going to say Liverpool. Yeah. um, Oh, God. uh, Newcastle. I think it's Newcastle. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to go somewhere in Wales. I think I'm going to say Swansea. That was actually from Glasgow. Oh. Ah. A bam is a sort of idiot. Ah. Trunk. See. Precisely. Excellent. That's good. Yeah. Okay, the second one. Trump doesn't seem to be a particularly pleasant gentleman. Oh, Ned made that sign. <laughs> Ned. I'm, I'm so polite. Yeah, I think it was you. No, uh, so it's, from, it's from West Sussex. Isn't it, it? Sc- yeah. it screams Brighton, London, but it could yeah. be Brighton, couldn't Brighton, it? It, it? It could Brighton. be Brighton. Or like uh, a university town like Oxford or Cambridge or something. I'm, yeah. I'll say Brighton as well. I That's mean, where I'm I from. Think you're going to go so Brighton. Yeah. I, I think Martha's right. It could be Cambridge. Yeah. Okay. It I'll was Cambridge. Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Well done, Martha. Okay, uh, I actually had to, to my shame, look up what this meant. Um, <laughs> that's not the that's not the actual <laughs> sign. No, no. <laughs> so this <laughs> one. Trump. Trump. Yeah. Trump can't hack Trebs. 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 Is that T R E B? Trebs. I don't know. I feel like we need to see Den here from Dictionary Corner. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, oh uh, let's go for Belfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, let's yeah? go for okay, Belfast. Belfast. I've got Belfast. Something that. That I've never heard of. Okay, the hint I would have given you would be that uh, a treb is something Ned's likely to consume. It's a treble. It's a treble drink, a treble shot drink. So this is from Newcastle. Oh. He can't, well, he he can't drink, handle his he? trebles. Yeah, he doesn't drink either, but yeah. Yeah. Geordies. That's the point, then, you know. Yeah. Um, number four. Go on. Trump is a waste man. Trump is a waste. Is there a comma after waste? Trump is a waste man. Uh. Waste. I'm going. So I'm going to go for Wales for that. I like Wales. <laughs> Wales has a good. I'm going to go for Bristol. Bristol. Oh, Trump Trump I'm going to say Liverpool just because I'm sure there was. Because if you keep saying Liverpool, yeah, yeah, at yeah, some yeah, point yeah, it'll yeah, be yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a waste. Oh, right. Oh, I don't know. Manchester. No, it was London, guys. Oh. They have a waste man. What's a waste man? You can see the look on her face now, the pain <laughs> in her eyes that we didn't know that. I Not mean, they're all sort of in the same, you know, yeah. a bam, a waste man. This is obvious look on your face. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do the accents, I'm sorry. Is right. that, is there any more? There's one more. Go on then, last one. Tampin about Trump. What? Tampin? Tampin. Tampin. Ooh. Tampin about Trump. Tampin. Oh. Just keep I saying mean, it. That's yeah, not going to yeah, help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Tam- okay, I'm going to say, I'm say Liverpool. Scotland, somewhere like somewhere Tam- in Scotland, like maybe. Oh, God. Edinburgh. Uh, uh, Birmingham. <laughs> I'm sticking with Wales. I love Wales. <laughs> <laughs> it's not <a> Cardiff. <laughs> Cardiff. It was Cardiff. Yes. yes. Well, you're tamping. You're really, really angry about something. Excellent. You went more Welsh then. You, you can't say she is tamping. Welsh. She is Welsh. Could you say it in Welsh? I'm. Uh, no. Can Go on. Not really. Not yeah. very well. No. Mm. Is that why you're coming to live in London to kick you out? I mean, that's. Don't, I can. I still know what tamping means. Yeah, okay. Right. So. Fair enough. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank good you, quiz. Sarah. Thanks Brilliant. There we are. That was a good quiz, wasn't it? Outsourcing the quiz it makes life a lot easier for me. I quite like it. Um, okay, let's do. Let's do this week's in case you missed it slash 
Brexit briefing. There is an overlap. Um, before we start, let's have a listen to a Mr. A doctor. Can we get our can we get our jingle? We'll use the jingle in a minute, Paul. I love the jingle. We we, we use it sparingly. Let's listen to Dr. Liam Fox, he of the uh, Department for International Trade. He appeared before a select committee this week, and he was asked about a report from Huffington Post, and this is what he said about it. You know, I don't like um, when when articles like that talk about the skilled staff we have already working in Whitehall as second rate. Um, I, I do find that... Third rate, actually. Yeah. Th- third rate, yes, yeah. Um, giving, Huffington, giving the Huffington Post the benefit of the doubt, which is not something I would normally do. So, we have the author of that article in the room with us. Martha Gill, hello. Hello. We're going to use this as in case you missed it. What was he so angry about? Tell us about this. Well, so, so the piece kind of described a certain amount of chaos in his department. Uh, I spoke to some trade groups and some businesses, which kind of concerned that, that, that the department weren't giving them much help when it came to exporting. Um, but the bits that he particularly didn't like was that, um, w- that one told me that the department was running around like headless chickens trying to get the civil servants into place. And that one business said uh, that that it was sort of, whenever he tried to speak to them, it was full of third-rate people trying to tick boxes uh, for themselves. So these were the bits that he he didn't like very much. I can't understand why he didn't like that. <laughs> I, know, I mean, are you <laughs> hopeful of booking him again? <laughs> 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 a Tory yeah, conference for a half-posting conversation you know, with him live? Half-post-live is yeah. just gone. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he's very sensitive about this part? <laughs> I mean, Liam <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <just> Fox <laughs> sensitive. I won't have him said on this podcast, Ned Simon. Just he wasn't very happy when Nick Clegg said he didn't have a job, did no. was he? Like, so I think there's maybe a I running theme. I always thought it was the easiest one to wind up. But you learn a little bit than we do. But you know, What's interesting about all this, which is the the competition within Whitehall for the for the best civil servants, and, and to, you know the bragging rights within Whitehall, and Dexu, David Davis's department, the Brexit department, is beginning to pull in some really high quality people. Um, you know, originally I think Martha wrote about this, the fact that early on. Um, you know, it was seen as a sort of poison chalice who would want to go and work there, but now things have flipped completely. If you want to be seen to be a name in the civil service, you go to Brexit Department. It is the powerful department, just as David Davis is the power in the land compared to anyone else in the cabinet. Is actually more powerful than the Chancellor, you might argue, and he's on a par with the Prime Minister. Um, Liam Fox's department doesn't have that same clout, but... After her speech the other week at Lancaster House speech where she made absolutely clear we're leaving this thing called the Customs Union. Most people have no idea what that is, uh, but they will know what it is when they go to Dover on holiday or and they're uh, trapped in a long queue or they're, they're facing new checks as a business. It's a big, big thing. And people like Liam Fox think it's actually brilliant to be liberated from this thing. And that's why he needs a big department because then we can get all these new um, trade relationships with other countries. So... They're very confident in his department, despite the criticism. They're very confident they can do it. Um, right, let's have the Brexit theme tune. <laughs> jingle theme tune. Have it again. Love that I love jingle. It. So one more time. <laughs> okay, there's some. It was all moving and shaking up this week. Um, former um, one of the European presidents, Martin Schulz, is going to challenge Angela Merkel. Uh, in the German election, which could be interesting. I still think Angela Merkel's probably going to win. Um, Andrew Tyree, who is a Conservative MP, who is uh, chair of the very powerful Treasury Committee, said it would be a train wreck for the UK if we fall back on World Trade Organisation rules. Sir Ivan Rogers, the civil servant who was the former ambassador to the EU and then quit in a huff last month, you remember, came before um, the European Scrutiny Committee and said, oh, we're going to put a bomb under the EU's budgets. We don't know where they're going to get all their money from. It's going to take forever. To, it's worse than the Second World War. It was all very <laughs> doom-laden. I mean, it was exactly what he 
we've said before, so we shouldn't really be too surprised about it. But apparently there's some, there's some weird thing in Germany that the German's financial watchdog, who's called Bathin, I don't know what that stands for, uh, it warned this week that it would not relax its rules um, in a bid to attract more banks to uh, to Frankfurt and Berlin, which is quite good for you know the idea that all these banks will leave London to go to Germany, but the Germans are saying, well, we're not going to relax our rules, and you know they're not there anyway at the moment. Um, but obviously the big thing, on our scale of Tim Farron to Nigel Farage, guys, I think we know who's had the happier week, right? Absolutely, Mr Farage, by a long, long way. It's finally happening, the bill's going through, the economic news is good, as we've seen yeah, today. Growth, growth the up, growth's growth, up in the Bank of England yeah. today. And, you know, the, all this talk about trade deals, whether it's with the US, whether it was with Turkey, whether it was other places, you know, they're kind of on the front foot at last. And I think there's a lot of Brexiteers whose tails are up. I mean, we're going to have to change this. I, d- I don't want to change my Farron or Farage thing because I quite like it. But it feels like we're never going to have... I mean, last week was quite good for Farron, I thought. But we're never going to have a good week for Farron. I don't think we? you do. I think it's going to be a lot of kind of Farage wins until we really get into the kind of the thick kind of the weeds of this of this negotiation. Right. We're just kind of setting up, aren't we? Okay. So, you know, it's, Farage is going to be happy. We, the vote last night is good for him. It's when we start getting into the nitty gritty of it... We, Tim Farron, in, in the sense, might have better weeks when yeah. it starts to be clear the trouble there is, the problems we're having in the negotiations. Yeah, and in any by-election, there's always going to be a contest between the two and none are, none are certain yet to go to, to Farage. Yeah, just imagine if not all doesn't win Stoke. I don't think that will be Farage's week. Very good point. Okay, thanks so much, guys, for, uh, for joining us. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with, no doubt, more Brexit news and some other stuff which we'll dig out. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> 